morning. The sermon text is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Very familiar text, often read. Uh, we even read it here, I think, last, uh, last Sunday. I think Rob read this passage. Uh, but Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. And if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Give ear to the word of God. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles or of the nations. Uh, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, in every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, I'm sure many of you, maybe most of you know that the book of Isaiah, we've read a few of them in the past few weeks, including this text. But the book of Isaiah has some of the most wonderful prophecies and promises of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ found in all the Old Testament. This book is littered with prophecies of Christ. Uh, We read uh, in a a previous Sunday, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. There in that one verse, we are told of the virgin birth of Christ. We are also told of the deity of Jesus Christ, our Lord, as well. Isaiah 7, 14 says this. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, you might know from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 123, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew translates that for us, the word Emmanuel, telling us that it means God with us. So the name that, that was given to Mary's son, Emmanuel, uh, literally means God with us. So make no mistake about this. Uh, many, many uh, hold the wrong views on these things. But the Lord Jesus Christ is God himself. He is God in the flesh, the Son of God incarnate. He is not, as the Jehovah's Witnesses say in their translation, a God with a small g. He is very God of very God. There is no difference in substance between him and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Look at the prophecy. Maybe you have read this a number of times in Isaiah chapter 53. We call that sometimes the, the suffering servant chapter. It's one of the most well-known passages in all the Old Testament. There we are told of the sufferings of Christ for our salvation. 
uh, and the doctrine of substitutionary atonement was taught there seven centuries before the coming of Christ and his crucifixion. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. There it says this, Surely he, that's Christ, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Seven centuries before the crucifixion, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, or his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus' death in our place was prophesied seven centuries before it happened in Isaiah chapter 53. Even the idea of, of crucifixion is hinted at in these verses. And again, this prophecy of Isaiah was written 700 years before the coming of Christ. It was written long before crucifixion had been invented. And yet here we see it prophesied of. The fulfillment of these and other things prophesied in the book of Isaiah are so precise that over the years unbelieving liberal scholars have concluded that they surely must have been written at a much later date. They can't conceive of the idea that God could possibly give revelation of something so long, so far in advance. One of those things uh, is that Cyrus, King Cyrus, is mentioned in chapters 44 and 45 uh, over 100 years before his birth and the return uh, of Judah from exile was prophesied there as well. That the unbelieving scholars can't possibly believe, they say, that that could be possible. The words of Jesus to the Sadducees in Matthew 22, 29 come to mind at that where Jesus told the Sadducees that they were wrong because they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They didn't, remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and this was Jesus' rebuke. Well, the same rebuke, I think, must apply to some of these liberal so-called scholars of God's word. What an amazing thing for us and a privilege to behold and believe all the fulfilled prophecy in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we see all through Scripture, but especially in the book of Isaiah. So this morning, we want to look briefly at another of those great prophecies of the coming of Christ found in our text in Isaiah chapter 9. We can't cover every last little detail of it, but we'll do our best this morning. In Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7, we see uh, we are told both of the birth of Christ, the birth of Christ, as well as his reign over all things in his kingdom, which it says will know no end of its expanse and its peace. So we see in Isaiah 9 not just the birth of Christ, this child and son who was born and given, but we are also told about the kingdom of Christ in this world. Isaiah chapter 8, the previous chapter, uh, there the prophet speaks, if you want to give a little bit of the background of what's going on, he foretells of the invasion of the Assyrian army that was to come, and it was amid this dark and gloomy period and backdrop that God gives us uh, not just a message of judgment, but in the light of that or in the context of that also gives us a, a, a glimpse, a prophecy of the good news of the gospel of his son. What a mercy of God in the midst of a really dark time in his the time of his people that God would give us a prophecy of the gospel as well. 
Look at Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 2 again. There we're told of a light shining in the midst of great darkness. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Now you might remember in your reading of the Gospels uh, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, his earthly ministry began in Galilee. And Matthew's Gospel actually points to that, to Christ's earthly ministry in Galilee, as the fulfillment of the verses we just read in Isaiah chapter 9. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17 says the following. It says, Now when he heard, he is Jesus, when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And here it is, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he quotes Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. It says, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what was this great light that suddenly shone among the Gentiles and among the nations there in Galilee and elsewhere? It was the person of Christ, but I think it's also we are meant to understand it was his message. He preached the gospel. He began to, that was the beginning of his earthly ministry of preaching. And there, what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they had the privilege. It wasn't in Jerusalem that Jesus went to at the first. It was in places like Galilee and elsewhere. So the coming of Jesus Christ was as a bright light shining in a very dark place. You might recall the, the first chapter of the gospel of John. John, verses, uh, John chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, which says this of Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome or comprehended it. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, Christ himself says that he is the light of the world. Same kind of imagery we see in Isaiah chapter 9. That's what the birth of Jesus Christ was. It was the coming of light and the light of the world. Now, Talking, the first thing here is about the birth of, of Christ. Much of verses 1 through 5 of our text talks about the effects that were a result of the coming of Christ. Uh, and those effects were things like the great deliverance of God's people from their enemies, from their oppressors. It has kind of a military sounding tone to it. This is a picture of great victory and rejoicing of the people over their enemies. And what was the cause in verses 1 through 5? What's the cause of this victory what's the cause of this exaltation and rejoicing of god's people it's the birth of a child it, it's this it's kind of a strange sounding thing if, if we didn't know better you'd think it was kind of a non sequitur it's like you're you're waiting for this picture of an army of a conquering king and what does isaiah by the spirit by the spirit of god prophesy about the birth of a child and the giving of a son look again at verses six through seven we'll spend most of our time there uh, this morning it says, uh, for to us a child is born, 
to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a pretty uh, big picture of a king and his kingdom. You know, if it was of a, hu- a merely human king, it would be exaggeration, wouldn't it? You know, and, and we see no, no uh, limit of those kinds of things. We see many examples of, of uh, political people, kings, presidents, others that, that exaggerate uh, the greatness of their earthly kingdoms and rules. Uh, now, the word for in the very beginning of verse 6, uh, which means like on account of this or because of this, in a lot of ways is the key word in, in the passage. You know, it's funny how sometimes in God's word, some of the smallest words uh, in God's word can, can loom very large on the pages of our Bibles. Sometimes the smallest little words can make all the difference uh, in, in what God is saying to us. And I think this is one of those kinds of instances. You know, we sometimes say it's been said by, I don't know who originated this, but it's often been said the two most important words in the Bible are but God. And one of those examples is Ephesians 2, 4. It talks about us being dead in our sins and trespasses, being, you know, being under the prince of the power of the air, all these things. And then Ephesians 2, 4, verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. It makes all the difference. Well, I think the word for here in our text is much similar to that. When Isaiah says for in verse 6, what he's doing is he's telling us the reason or the basis, the cause of this great deliverance and rejoicing of God's people that was prophesied and promised there in our passage. The great old commentator Matthew Poole writes the following. He says, having spoken of the glorious light, and joy and victory of God's people, he now proceeds to show the ground of it and by what person these things are procured. Who, not just what, who is the cause of this victory, this joy, this light, this great rejoicing? Well, it's told to us in verse 6 when he says, For, because of this, to us a child is born. This child, this son that was born and given is the source and ground of this glorious victory and rejoicing. And what is the reason or ground of deliverance, rejoicing, and hope in this time of gloom and darkness and despair? Again, it's probably the last thing we would ever would have expected. If we didn't, you know, if you haven't heard Isaiah 9 and read it so many times in your life, you know, I always kind of say this, you remember Etch-a-Sketches, you shake them and the picture you drew goes away. If you could Etch-a-Sketch your memory of, of part of Scripture for a minute, we can't do that. And you, you would never expect what comes after the word for in verse 6. We would never expect him to talk about a child being born and a son being given. But it was the birth of a child. It was the giving of a son uh, that was the source of this victory and salvation. Isaiah says, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given. And speaking of, of small little words looming large on a page of scripture, notice he doesn't just say for a child is born, and for a son is given. That, that would be enough, but he adds a couple little words in the, both those phrases, doesn't he? He says, 
for to us a child is born, and to us or for us a son is given. He was born, Christ was, he was born and given for us, for our benefit, even for our salvation. But look at the description of this child, this son, who would be given for us. This is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary son. The things that the scripture says of Jesus Christ here would be blasphemous if they were said of a merely human king. It wouldn't just be an exaggeration. It would be blasphemy to say these things of any merely human king. Not even David or Solomon in all their glory could hold a candle to the one who was the light of the world. How is it that it can say here that the government of all these things could be placed upon his shoulder? How is it possible for a human king, a merely human king, that once he reigned, there could be no end of the increase of his government and of peace as a result? Lots of politicians and rulers promise things like this, and none of them deliver it. None of them deliberate except Christ himself. How can these things be? How can, how can it be that these things could come to pass and not be hyperbole and not be exaggeration? It's because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, is called here Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he is the true Prince of Peace because he's none other than Mighty God himself. Jesus Christ is God Almighty and nothing less than that. Biblical scholar and theologian E.J. Young writes the following, True peace comes to us because a child was born. That child and he alone is the Prince of Peace. When we have peace, it is to him that we must go. So I'll ask this morning, do you, do you have peace? Do you have peace with God? Have you been reconciled to God by the death of of his son by faith in him. You know, it's been said many times, but it bears repeating. You'll, you'll know no true peace in this life or in the life to come. Unless you have peace with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is here called the Prince of Peace. There can be no true peace in this life or the life to come without Christ. None. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never repented and turned to him, turn from your sins, look to him by faith, and have eternal life and true peace with him, true peace with God, even today. Well, the second thing, it's not unrelated to that, uh, but the second thing in our text makes mention of is the kingdom of Christ. Not just the birth of a child, but the kingdom of that child, the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ, according to our passage here and elsewhere in Scripture, is not like the passing Kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of this world pass away. They rise and fall according to the sovereign decree of Almighty God. God himself raises up nations and kings for his own purposes and glory. And when they rebel against him and against his Christ in due time, Christ, who the Bible calls the ruler of kings on earth, Revelation 1.5, can cast them down in a moment and often does. History is littered with examples of the Lord Jesus Christ casting down rulers and even casting down nations for their rebellion. If you have the eyes of faith to see it. But Christ's kingdom shall know no end. Our text says it will increase and spread over all the earth, even as it has been doing since he was seated at the right hand of God 
as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The risen Christ himself in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All authority in the entire universe has been given to Christ at the right hand of God. There is not a square inch of the entire universe, not just the world, of heaven and earth over which he does not reign and over which his reign is not even now, in many ways, increasing in some ways. All authority has been given to him. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. He says, Therefore, talking about his death and resurrection, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, everyone that's ever walked this earth will acknowledge Christ as Lord, as the rightful Lord and King. Psalm 72 says in the King James Version, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. One of my favorite hymns, I was tempted to put it in the service today, but I thought I'd better stick with Christmas hymns since it's Christmas Day, is the ends of all the earth shall hear, based upon Psalm 72. Psalm 110.1, if you remember Pastor Gary a few years ago now, uh, preached the sermon on this text and called it God's favorite Bible verse. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord, that's Yahweh, says to my Lord, that's Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Trinity is right there in the page, two of the three persons of the Godhead. The Lord, uh, Yahweh, God the Father there, says to my Lord, and what does he say? Sit at my right hand, the enthronement, the ascension of Christ, until what? Until he makes your enemies, his enemies, a footstool for his feet. So the Lord Jesus Christ must, must sit at God's right hand until he makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. How does God do that? How does Christ make his enemies his footstool? I always say one of two ways. He either converts them or he condemns them. Those are the two. He either judges them or saves them. And I pray that all of us in this room are, are the kind of footstool that he has saved and not that he is, uh, is condemning. Because God the Father is the one who's doing it, it most certainly will come to pass. It is not only a prophecy, it is also a promise, Psalm 110.1 is. Think about that. Psalm 110.1, it's the, the most, I, I never know how to quite say this correctly, it is the verse in the Old Testament, and Psalm 110 in general is the passage in the Old Testament that is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other verse or passage. It must be awfully important. Psalm 110.1 is not just a prophecy. It is a promise from God the Father to God the Son. From God the Father to Jesus Christ the Lord saying, He's going to make His enemies a footstool for His feet. It's going to happen. It's not, a, it's not up in the air as to whether it's going to be accomplished. Look again at verse 7 where Isaiah says, Of the increase of his government, that's the government of Christ, and of peace there will be what? No end. He's not just saying Christ's kingdom won't end. That's true. He's saying of the increase of it 
And where his government increases, what else increases to no end? His peace. Why? Because he's establishing it in justice and righteousness. He's on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and what? Forevermore. There will be no end to the increase of Christ's government and peace. And then what does it say at the very end of verse 7? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not just the promise of God to his son, but the zeal of God. So, you know, it may not always look like it. In fact, it often doesn't look like it, does it? If you're looking at the news right now, you see chaos seemingly everywhere. You see uh, pagan religion on the rise. You see perversion and rebellion against God's commandments everywhere you look. But these things will most certainly come to pass. Christ's kingdom will grow. It is growing, and it will be established. How? How does Christ's kingdom grow? Is it by the sword? Not, not any earthly sword. It's by the sword of the word of God, by the gospel and the power of the preaching of the gospel. As Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is what? The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It's the power of God. It's, what, it's the way that God Almighty works. One commentator, I forget who it was, he called this, when he says that it's the power of God unto salvation, he called the gospel the omnipotence of God at work. It doesn't look powerful. In fact, Paul calls it elsewhere the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of preaching, God uses it to save sinners. No wonder the heavenly host praised God at the birth of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, the third thing and the last thing I'd like us to look at is in the very last sentence of verse 7 where it says the zeal, it speaks of the zeal of the Lord of hosts. How is it that you and I can know that all these things we've read of in, in Isaiah 9, all these prophecies of Christ's kingdom and his peace increasing and never ending, how are, how are you and I to know these things will come for sure to pass? Why else ought we to be firmly convinced and persuaded of the success of the gospel and of Christ's kingdom conquering and ruling over all things? Isaiah tells us right at the end of verse 7, where he says simply, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do or will accomplish this. Now notice this. He doesn't just say, which he could have said, he doesn't just say the Lord of hosts will do this, does he? That would have been enough. It should have been enough. It should be enough for us, but he says more than that. He actually gives us two reasons in one in some ways. And one of those is the zeal of the Lord of hosts. It's by these two things and others that our hearts should be assured in serving the Lord, knowing his kingdom will have no end. First, I'll do them in reverse order if that's okay. First is the power of God. The power of God should assure every believer these things cannot help but come to pass. Christ's kingdom cannot help but increase. The peace as a result of his kingdom growing cannot help but increase and be established. Why? Because it says God is the Lord of hosts. God could have picked any name of his he wanted to pick in this passage, but he used the name the Lord of hosts in particular. What does that word mean? It means that God is almighty God. Uh, to be the Lord of hosts is to be the God of angelic armies, the God of the very hosts of heaven. 
When you think of an earthly nation, when you think of its power, what do you think of? You think of its armed forces. You think of its military. And you might think in our day of, of all the, you know, the bombs and equipment and things and the increase of that, but it's really the, the size of your army and the power of that army. Well, who has a mightier army than God? God is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of angel armies. When you read of the things that the angels, that God uses the angels to do in your scriptures, uh, they, would have been, they would be a terrifying thing to behold. Their power is something we could not comprehend. We would be as even the Apostle John was in Revelation. Remember, John twice in Revelation was like bowed down before them almost to worship. And the angels had to say, whoa, I'm paraphrasing. They didn't say, whoa, but no, no, no. You know, we are God's fellow servants just like you. That's how powerful they are. They aren't these chubby Hallmark babies. They are mighty warriors that do great things beyond or even our imagination. But God is the God of angel armies. He is the Lord of hosts. Nothing is impossible with him and none of his enemies can hope to stand before him. Psalm 2, this is a Psalm a Psalm Sunday seems like, but Psalm 2 tells us that when the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, what does anointed mean? It's the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. So they are, they are taking counsel against God and against Christ himself. What does Jesus do in response? You know, you and I are terrified often of, of the rulers of this world. At least... You know, as far as things in this life go, they affect us very often uh, for harm. You know, if anything, it's one of the things many of us believe in limited government, not of Christ's government, but of, of our own earthly governments, because the more power they have, the more harm they do. Not so with Christ. But when they, when they the most, think of the most powerful nations in the world in our day, and them all gathering together against God and against his Christ, how does Christ respond in Psalm 2? It says in Psalm 2, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens, who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ is seated at God's right hand. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs. And it says, The Lord holds them in derision. He dashes them to pieces in his own providence, in his own time. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, laughs at them. They are, in other words, they're nothing to him. They can't possibly stop the expanse of his kingdom. There are nations in this world, and sometimes it seems like we're becoming one of them, who enact laws and things and punish the preaching of the gospel. What are they doing when they do that? They are trying to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what does God do? What does Jesus do? He laughs. They can't stop the power of the gospel. His, his gospel is the weapon that he uses to advance his kingdom, and it's been doing so ever since the very beginning. But what's the second reason we're given in verse 7 at the very end uh, of our text? It might be the most amazing reason of all. It says the zeal, not just the Lord of hosts, but the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this or will accomplish these things. What is zeal? And we use a lot of words as Christians. We read a lot of words in our Bibles. We don't really often define them. Um, the same Hebrew word as we see in our text translated as zeal is often translated as jealousy. A husband's jealousy for his wife. Same word. And I think with, with good reason. Those two terms 
are very closely related. Sometimes it's hard to know when you're translating Hebrew in the Old Testament which one you should use because they're, they're, they're so closely related together. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, verses 5 to 6, in that passage about, about worship and idolatry, it uses the same word, and most of our Bibles translate it as jealous. It says uh, there that God prohibits the sin of idolatry and will worship, and we are told the reason why we are not to make carved images and to bow down to them or serve them is what? Verse 5 and 6. He says, for, there's that word again, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. Not jealous in a sinful way, right? This is a holy jealousy. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. How, what kind of hatred of God is he, does he have in mind here? Idolatry. Will worship. What is will worship? It's basically doing whatever we think we like. Instead of saying, what does God say in his word about what we should do and how we should do it in worship? Idolatry says, well, I like this. I prefer this. Instead of saying, what, is God, what would God have us do? And one of the most common things that we do as, as human beings, as sinners, is we commit idolatry. Sometimes even actually making statues and images to worship God by. But God is jealous for his glory, and he's jealous and zealous about his worship, and we should be as well. God is jealous or zealous for the glory of his name. He is zealous for his worship. He is zealous for the kingdom of Christ, his son. And ought you and I who believe, ought we not to be zealous for those same things? Ought we not to be zealous for the things of God, for the things that the Lord our God is himself zealous for? In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ, you might know, uh, was so known for his zeal for the house of the Lord that it was said to consume him. John chapter 2, verse 17, it says, It's written, zeal for your house has consumed me. Remember what that was in fulfillment of or what that was referencing? Christ overturning the, the tables of the money changers. He was so consumed with zeal for his father's house and his glory, he couldn't bear to see that happening. And he starts turning tables over Christ took the worship in the house of God very, very seriously. And that was a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. Are you and I likewise zealous for the house of God, as Jesus himself is? God is zealous for the salvation of sinners. He's so zealous for it that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, John 3:16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Are you and I zealous for evangelism and missions? Do we believe that God himself is himself zealous for these things as well? Matthew Poole, again, writes the following. This great work which surpasseth all the power and skill of men, that's the, the building of Christ's kingdom, this great work which surpasses all the power and skill of men shall be brought to pass by Almighty God out of that fervent affection or zeal, that fervent affection which he has to his own name and glory and to the honor of his dearly beloved son and unto his church and people. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is why these things will come to pass. Joseph Alexander, 19th century uh, 
Reformed scholar says this. He said, the zeal of God being the cause of the sure expansion of Christ's kingdom, quote, affords a sure foundation for the hopes of all believers. God's zeal is a sure foundation for the hope of all believers. And he goes on to say this. His zeal, that's the zeal of God, his zeal is not a passion, but a principle of powerful and certain operation. The astonishing effect produced by feeble means, he's talking about the preaching of the gospel, the astonishing effect produced by feeble means in the promotion, preservation, and expansion of Christ's kingdom can only be explained upon the principle that the zeal of the Lord of hosts affected it, made it come to pass. The preaching of God's word, humanly speaking, is the, I almost said the weirdest thing, it's the weakest thing you can imagine. Unbelievers mock it and laugh at it. What could that possibly do? Why do you stupid Christians do this? Why do you do this every week? You read from this old book, sometimes with old language, thee, thou, though, all these kinds of things. Why are you wasting your time on, these, on the foolish things according to the world? But what, is, what does it say in the scriptures? The power of God into salvation. His word is living and active. Like a two-edged sword. All these things, God, God's power works through his word. At creation, how did God create? He spoke. He spoke. It's his word that God works through. And Alexander says there that the expanse of God's kingdom, of Christ's kingdom through the preaching of his gospel can only be explained upon the principle that the zeal of the Lord of hosts affected it. God is zealous for these things, and that's why they come to pass. That's why his word, not a word of God's, will fall to the ground. Has God's zeal brought about the long-awaited coming of Christ in that child who was born and the son who was given unto us for our salvation? And shall that same zeal somehow fail to accomplish the spread of his kingdom throughout the preaching of the gospel throughout the world? If God's zeal is a thing that lay behind the sending of his son, and it certainly is, according to Isaiah 9, then it, the same zeal that, that sent forth his son will make sure that his kingdom expands at all times until the day when Christ comes in glory. So may the Lord Jesus Christ work in you and me by his Holy Spirit that you and I might grow in zeal, that we might be more zealous for the things of, the things of God, the things that God himself is zealous for. And may his power and zeal for his name, his kingdom, and the salvation of sinners give you and I great confidence and zeal as we serve him toward these very ends. May you and I in the new year become more zealous for the things that God himself is zealous for. I'll finish with a quote. Some of you know who William Carey was, a great Baptist missionary to the country of India. And he didn't speak of God's zeal, but I think the quote uh, reflects well uh, on that, that theme. He says that we are to, quote, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Amen.